I'm Hillary. I'm Emily. And, and we're, we're the, the sirens. sirens. Today we are talking about the movie 42nd Street, which is a 1933 musical starring Warner Baxter, B.B. Daniels, George Brent, Ruby Keeler, Dick Powell, and Ginger Rogers. It's perhaps best known, I think, for the choreography that was staged by Busby Berkeley. And it also features songs written by Harry Warren, who wrote the music, and Al Dubin, who wrote the uh, lyrics. So it's 1932, the country is deep in, a, in the Depression, and stage director Julian March has just about one good show left in him before he gives up on show business, and show business gives up on him. Luckily, noted Broadway producers Jones and Barry are backing the musical Pretty Lady, which is set to star Dorothy Brock, played by B.B. Daniels, and Dorothy Brock is wooing Broadway financial backer Abner Dillon. It's a really precarious setup. Abner won't fund the show unless Dorothy is the lead, but Dorothy is hiding a secret affair with her old vaudeville partner, Pat Denning. It's played by George Brent. When Marsh gets wind of this affair, he calls a mobster friend to take care of Pat. Because the show must go on. Meanwhile, Marsh and his dance director Andy have to hire 40 dancers for the show. Andy's girl Lorraine and Lorraine's friend Anytime Annie, played by Una Merkel and Ginger Rogers, are among the dancers who are chosen. And they take a newcomer named Peggy Sawyer, played by a real-life newcomer, Ruby Keeler under their wing. There's breakneck rehearsals, lots of parties and innuendos, and lots of kissing between the dancers. Juvenile lead Billy Lawler, who's played by Dick Powell, takes an immediate shine to Ruby when she accidentally walks in on him in his dressing room, but he's got some competition when Pat takes an interest in her, too. Dorothy discovers that Pat is seeing someone else, which makes her realize she can't live without him. She breaks her ankle the night before opening night in Philadelphia. We talk about Philadelphia and how they pronounce the word Philadelphia. Yes. Anytime Annie, played by Ginger Rogers, seizes her chance to bag Abner so that she can convince Marsh and the other showrunners to put Peggy in the lead role. There's dancing, singing, wisecracks, star-crossed lovers, and maybe enough references to Philadelphia to satisfy the two of us. (laughs) That makes it sound like there's a lot more of a plot than there really is <laughs> yes. in this show. Uh, and that is literally all of a the plot. <laughs> there's nothing. I didn't leave anything out, I don't think. I mean, it's basically about the business we call show. <laughs> <laughs> Which satisfies me. <laughs> I mean, it was satisfying. There was always so much like going on. Just so many people on stage. Like, in camera at any given moment that it was, like, visually, like, stimulating and fascinating. Yeah. That's what, it almost reminded me of Stormy Weather a little bit in Mm -hmm. that the plot was thin, but all the performers were really amazing and the production was really high. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking of Stormy Weather a lot, too. Until the end of it, when I was thinking about An American in Paris. (laughs) Hey. (laughs) This ending, okay, we'll talk, we'll get into it later. (laughs) Do you... Do you have some uh, trivia Trivia? for us? I have a couple of pieces of trivia. The love theme for this movie was written by Harry Warren, and it's played under the scenes between Ruby Keeler and Dick Powell and then B.B. Daniels and George Brent. It's the same song. It has no title or lyrics, and it's not published anywhere. The movie is the only place it exists. In the original novel that this um, movie was based on, Julian Marsh and Billy are lovers, which is 
a different storyline from the movie. Um, yeah. And <laughs> they had to change it because same-sex relationships were not acceptable by the moral standards of the era. So they couldn't show it on film, so they substituted the romance between Billy and Peggy. Which I did not find very believable, but... Yeah, I mean... Okay. <laughs> sure. So throughout the movie, there are a lot of songs that allude to sex, but there's one moment at the end of the song Shuffle Off to Buffalo when the it, the word of the lyrics in the song are clearly supposed to be belly. It had to be changed to tummy to comp- comply with the motion picture production code that wasn't really like enforced very well, but that was the idea. Wait, so why is belly... I don't know. <laughs> Unacceptable, but tummy, tummy is. Uh, who knows? <laughs> But they, because they had to make this change, they decided to, like, purposely draw attention to the fact that they were being censored. So they, you can, like, it's very obvious in that song that, you know, Ginger Rogers is singing and, like, in the middle of it, Una Merkel, like, gestures to her to, like, uh, watch out for the bad word and she starts to say <laughs> belly and changes to tummy. <laughs> yeah, that, um, I- I know all this music really well, and I always thought that song was a little hokey, but the, I paid more attention to the lyrics in this version. I was like, oh, this is like... Racy. Yeah, this is racy, and like if you couple it with what's on screen, where it's like they're about to consummate their marriage in this tiny little like curtain spot on the train <laughs> with Very lots private. of people around. Yeah. You know, it was pretty... Sec- I mean, but this was all pre-code, so... Technically, it had been written in 1930, but they weren't enforcing it yet. Uh, okay, yeah, because there's a lot of stuff in this that I was like, they could not have gotten away with this a couple years later. Yeah. Lots of side boob we'll talk about. So much side boob. <laughs> so this was Ruby Keeler's first film, and it was also the first time that Busby Berkeley, Harry Warren, and Al Dubin, who wrote the music and the lyrics, all worked for Warner Brothers. The director, Lloyd Bacon, was not actually the first choice to direct um, the first choice was Mervyn Leroy. When Leroy was, like, at the home of this movie, he was dating Ginger Rogers at the time, and so he, like, suggested her to take the role of Anytime Annie, which is a little bit of life imitating art. Oh. Yeah, I enjoyed seeing her in this. I know. And then the last trivia I have is there is a quote from this movie that's on the AFI's 100 Years 100 Movie Quotes list of most memorable quotes. And that line is, Sawyer, you're going out a youngster, but you've got to come back a star. Oh. So. (laughs) I didn't know that was a famous quote. I feel like there's more quotable lines from this. (laughs) I know. That's all I got. That was good. I bioed Ruby Keeler. Yay! I didn't know a lot about her. And actually, you know, I watched the movie first. I've I've seen the play, but I've never seen the movie. So I watched the movie first, and I was kind of like, she really doesn't have the same star power as BB. But then when I was looking into it, I was like, oh, it's because she's primarily a dance like her background is as a dancer and she was a really great dancer but anyway so she was born in dartmouth nova scotia in 1909 one of six siblings in an irish catholic family her father was a truck driver and when ruby was three years old the family moved to new york city so he could get better pay she was interested in taking dance lessons from a young age but the family couldn't afford it Uh, She attended St. Catherine of Siena on New York's east side, and they had a dance teacher who came in like once a week and taught all styles of dance. And the teacher saw that Keeler was gifted and spoke to her mother about 
um, her taking like more professional lessons. And the mother declined because they didn't have the money. And the teacher wanted to work with Keeler so badly that she asked her mother if she could just have her come to the classes for free. Wow. And um, so that's kind of how she got started with her training. And during the classes, a girl told Keeler about auditions for chorus girls. And the law required that chorus girls be at least 16 years old. They were only 13, but they just decided to lie about their age in audition anyway. Sure. <laughs> and the stage was covered with a wooden apron. So when it was Keeler's turn to dance, she asked the dance director if she could dance on the wooden part so that her taps could be heard. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't respond, but she did it anyway. And then he got mad and said, who said you could dance up there? And she said, I asked you. And then he gave her the job anyway. <laughs> the rise of Rosie O'Reilly in 1923, where she made $45 a week. So she was 14 years old when she was hired by Nils Granlin, the publicity manager for Lowe's Theaters who also served as the stage show producer for Texas Gwinnin at Larry Fay's El Fay nightclub, which was a speakeasy frequented by gangsters. Very much the kind of place you'd want to hang out as a 14-year-old. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, she was noticed by Broadway producer Charles B. Dillingham, who gave her a role in Bye Bye Bonnie, which ran for six months. And she then appeared in Lucky and as Mamie in the Sidewalks of New York, also produced by Dillingham. In the latter show... She was seen by Flo Zigfield, who sent her a bunch of roses afterwards and a note that stated, May I make you a star? <laughs> so it seems like, I mean, she really had more of a theater background mm-hmm. and like stage background, and it seemed like people who saw her live were like amazed by her. Mm-hmm. Um, so she appeared in Zigfield's Whoopee in 1928, and that same year she married Al. Jolson of the um, the jazz singer. Oh. The two met in Los Angeles where Granlin had sent her to assist in the marketing campaign for the jazz singer. Jolson was smitten and immediately proposed and they married in September 1928 in a private ceremony. They sailed the following morning for a brief honeymoon before she began her tour for Whoopi. She was 19 years old, and he was 42. Wow. Yeah. I think a lot of people remember him for the jazz singer, but he was, like, most famous at the time for being, like, this really prominent blackface performer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great. In, in 1933, producer Daryl Zanuck cast Keeler in the Warner Brothers musical 42nd Street. And it was a huge success, like you said, due to the really amazing choreography. And after that movie, Jack Warner gave Keeler a long-term contract and cast her in Gold Diggers of 1933, Footlight Parade, Dames, and Colleen. Um, she got to star with her husband in Go Into Your Dance, which was their only film together. And they also appeared on Broadway together for the unsuccessful show Hold On To Your Hats. And then after that... She retreated from public life for about, like, 30 years. But in 1971, she made a comeback as a big star in the successful Broadway revival of the 1920s musical No, No, Nanette. (laughs) Opposite Jack Guilford, Bobby Van, Helen Gallagher, and Patsy Kelly. And that stage production was supervised by Keeler's 42nd Street director, Busby Berkeley. 
And that won a Tony Award for the choreography. And Keeler starred in the musical for two seasons on Broadway, followed by two additional years touring in the show. And then she suffered a brain aneurysm in 1974 and became a spokeswoman for the National Stroke Association. And she died of kidney cancer on February 28, 1993, at age 83. So I didn't go too much into her personal life. That bio makes me wish that... um could go see Broadway shows. I know. And that's the thing. When she was dancing in the movie, you really couldn't take your eyes off of no. her. Yeah. And she did, like, there was, she had a certain style that was kind of, it wasn't even like that it was super graceful. It was, like, athletic. Mm-hmm. It was just really cool. Yeah. And uh, it was, like, very impressive to watch. Yes. And you know I love tap dancing. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, what's your relationship with the movie? Have, had you heard of it? Had you seen it before? Um, I'd heard of it. I had never seen it. So this was my first time seeing it, and I'd never seen the, like, the stage production either. So, it's all new to me. <laughs> and what did you think? I really liked it up until the point, 20 minutes from the end, where it was just straight, like, dance numbers, which I know is, like heretical to say when it's a like Busby Berkeley <laughs> like that was part of the point of this movie I like a plot um so I but I like up until that point I really liked everything about it and I could totally like forgive the fact that there wasn't you know a lot of plot in this movie or that it didn't totally make a lot of sense it was just you know I got swept up in the like the feeling of it yeah remind me what your relationship so I didn't see it I well I never had seen the movie before I did not see the stage production until I think I was in high school but my mom who's also like very into musicals and theater had a lot of cast albums and we listened to this album all the time so I really grew up with the music Uh, which I do really like. I think a lot of the songs are catchy. And so it was one of those things where, like, I knew the music before I saw the show. And I will say that, like, the show is different than the movie. It's longer and has a more intricate plot. And it has more music. It's not the same. I mean, it's, it's, like, the fundamental plot is the same, but there's more, like, like, the BB character was more of a villain in it. And there's, like... More of a love story. There's a whole song about how Peggy's from Allentown and everyone makes fun of her for being from Allentown. <laughs> like, there's a whole thing. And they're not, people aren't nice to her right away, you yeah. know? Like, I thought that was actually the most implausible part of this <laughs> movie. Um, yeah. So, I liked it overall, but it was more what you said, that, like, I really liked the production, and I really liked the dance and the songs, and I didn't find the story as exciting. Although there were some, like, interesting choices that I wasn't expecting. Like what? I liked how they actually talked about mental health mm-hmm. in yeah. in the show, and in a way that was not, like, super stigmatized. Yeah. It was more just like, oh, this director had a breakdown, and, like, we're sympathetic to that and like if he's having a bad day we'll stay with him (laughs) like that kind of thing yeah I thought that was nice and then the fact that it's set during the depression if this was made today it would be like you have to like go out there and kill it because you want to be a star and you want to be famous and this is your shot but like the narrative 
in this was you have to go out there and kill it because all these people's jobs are depending on you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. you're in the Great Depression. So, yeah. like, you have an obligation to this community. And I was like, whoa, that is not something you would hear today. No. I liked that, too. That, like, that was the pep talk. <laughs> all these people depend on you financially <laughs> to nail this. Yeah. You know, I wasn't a big fan. I kind of was more struck by how, like, me too came up like every five seconds in this movie with the way that the men were behaving towards the women and just kind of how like demoralizing it was for the chorus girls it was like lift your skirts higher higher yeah (laughs) you know and like there was that whole number with billy where the girl like literally just sits there and smiles the whole time like Mm -hmm. wearing a skimpy outfit which felt super gross yeah yeah and then like the behind the scenes dynamics too like the boys are all like trying to like kiss them and like you know dance with the girls or whatever and yeah um they have to kind of like go along with it and sometimes it seems like they're like totally cool with it and then sometimes it seems like that you know they just really have had enough yeah it did not seem like it would have been a job for the faint of heart (laughs) no (laughs) When it comes to the men and when it comes to the, like, endless rehearsal. Yeah, I thought that part was really well done. I mean, I, like, obviously I've never been in that professional level of a show, but I did a lot of theater growing up, and the way they showed the rehearsals for musicals where you're just, like, dancing till you're basically falling down. Yeah. It was so... And, and the director's just, like, screaming at you <laughs> that you're all lazy. and Like, that felt very on to me. But it was interesting, like, the director was really mean for, like, most of it, and then at the at the very end, he, like, flipped his um, style and was, like, using all this positive reinforcement. <laughs> Which, like, I definitely prefer that, but I was like, this seems out of character. I think you'd just be telling everyone that they sucked. <laughs> uh, were you mad when they all were making fun of Philadelphia? <laughs> I just thought it was funny that they all pronounced Philadelphia with, like, they pronounced it Philadelphia. <laughs> which Philadelphia. I, Philadelphia. Which I think is how, I don't know if you ever listened to Morning Edition on WHYY, speaking of mm-hmm. Philadelphia, but there is, I love listening to Morning Edition and the morning host for WHYY during Morning Edition, I think pronounces Philadelphia like that as well. Philadelphia. <laughs> and... I love it when she says it, so... I don't know, it was just very quaint. (laughs) And I wasn't expecting them to say, opening night is in Philly. I was like, why is an opening night on Broadway? Okay. I know. (laughs) Well, that used to be the thing. They would, like, try out all the shows. It used to be that they did it in Philly, and I think they really stopped doing that now, but they still do it in Boston. Yeah. Because they're like, well, we'll try it out on these (laughs) dum-dums, and if they like it... (laughs) Then we'll take it to the city. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think of how, like, all the men just, like, instantly fell in love with Peggy? (laughs) For no reason. I mean, that seemed like a pretty classic trope that she's, like, the newcomer. Yeah, it's just, like, considering that they were surrounded by all these very, like, worldly people who had been in the theater world, and she was super innocent, like, slow on the uptake... I was kind of like, why would they go for her? Like, she just doesn't seem like the one, but... Maybe that was part of the the attraction, or supposed to be part of the attraction, was that, like, she was fresh and new. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like an old trope 
Like, mm-hmm. oh, small town girl goes. I actually find that trope a little bit annoying when, like, a newcomer comes and then, like, instantly is made a star. Yeah. Somehow and, like, bypasses all the people who've been paying their dues for, like, years. Yeah. Although I appreciated the, like, unexpected twists at the end of this movie where we kind of get the sense that Annie, anytime Annie is kind of, like, you know, she's going to take any opportunity she can get to, like, you know, get ahead and, you know, even if it means, like, sleeping her way to the top. And at the end of the movie, like, she, like, totally has her eye on Abner and, like, when Dorothy is, like, done with him because she wants to go back to Pat, you know, she, like, swoops in and takes that opportunity and then shows up at the theater with Abner. We're being led to believe that she's, like, she's gonna be the new star to, like, take over, and she says, you gotta take Peggy. Like, she's the one to take this role, and I must really mean it if I'm throwing my one shot (laughs) to, like, like, I, I realize that this is my opportunity and I'm really saying you need to hire Peggy. I like that. The other thing I liked is that Abner then became the dog sitter during the show. (laughs) Abner was a creep. (laughs) Yeah, he deserved to be the dog sitter and nothing else. Uh, I thought the most dead-on thing in this movie was when they were at that party the night before and Abner, as this, like, old rich white guy, gets drunk and then is like, I used to do wrestling. I could pick you up. Like, that's totally the kind of thing that happens to parties like that. These old rich entitled guys... Eat the rich. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, this have you ever read Sister Carrie? Um, I have not read Sister Carrie. This is like the more positive version of that because like... <laughs> oh yeah, because she like descends into the darkness of Chicago, right? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like... I mean, that's like a cautionary tale of like what happens when the small town girl goes to big... I mean, you could read it different ways. You could also read it like she has agency and society is not ready for her. But it's kind of like... <laughs> You know, she keeps sort of getting more and more into, like, a bad crowd, and she ends up being a chorus girl and sleeping around with all these people. But this is, like, the flip of that, where it's like, small-town girl goes, and everyone loves their charm, (laughs) and then they instantly become a star. (laughs) That's how it works. But, yeah, I'm sure that's how it works for everyone. Yeah. No exceptions. No. It's, uh, accurate. That's an accurate depiction of real life making it on Broadway. You just have to have small town, small town charm. I know a couple people who like actually did try to do that. Oh Go make it, and they're all doing something else now. Yeah, I mean, not like in a way that's like I failed, but in a way that like, oh, this lifestyle is not sustainable in the long term, and I'm miserable. It was reminding me of Stage Door a little bit. That like, yeah, we know what these girls do when they're dancing, but what are the, what do they do when they're not? Like, this in Pretty Lady, like, what what do they do to, you know, sort of keep their heads up and... Yeah, I mean, they were all, like, really jostling just for those chorus girl mm-hmm. parts, which probably paid almost nothing. Yeah. And at, in the stage musical, you know the song, I've Got Money? Uh-huh. That, that is in that. <laughs> and they, they have show the girls, like, looking in the seat cushions of the theater oh my God. for spare change like to illustrate how poor they are and one of them finds a dime and is like a whole dime oh my god <laughs> which you know i get I drove that point home a little bit more jeez <laughs> so what did you think of the final big like musical song and dance production and i know this is not the like the point of this like the production but the 
first thing I remember of those big production numbers is that there were a number of times where the camera like swooped in really close like through the legs through this big old thing and by the time they got to the like like when they went through the legs for example there was a woman and a man you know and the man's looking right at the cam the camera and the girl is like looking off a little ways and then she like looks back at the camera this whole big production number you couldn't even look at the camera when it was coming right at you <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> and there were like a couple of other places like in those last 20 minutes where that same thing happened and I was like I don't like why are you not watching the camera <laughs> <laughs> well there was a lot going on there I were know. like feather boas and high kicks and yeah and someone getting shot I don't know those like oh, yeah <laughs> they were that very elaborate <laughs> Like, most of it all just, like, made sense to me. And, like, at least in this, as compared to an American in Paris, this fit into the plot that it was like, oh, we're now putting on the show that is part of the yeah. thing. Whereas in American in Paris, you just go to Gene Kelly's eye. Yeah. And it's just a fantasy. Right. We are, I think, supposed to believe that this is part of the show. Yeah. Although I wish they had had more of a conclusion afterwards to be like, oh, she did it. Or like, yes, we're going to New York or something. But yeah. And instead, there's just the little, you know, like the little snippet of dialogue at the end in March, like sit, sitting on the step unhappy. Yeah. What did you think um, about the production at the end? Well, I liked it. I mean, I like this kind of show. It's like a more traditional musical. Like if you set aside some of the more like misogynistic <laughs> aspects of it. Uh-huh. I enjoy the big song and dance numbers and, like, all the tapping. And I like a musical that's just, like, really impressive and that, like, makes you feel good, which is kind of, I think, what that was. Although the weird part when they kind of went off into what I was assuming was supposed to be New York City and there was, like, street scenes to me seemed out of place. Because <laughs> yeah. there was, like, a woman being attacked that I was like, why is this here? And then she, yeah. like, jumps out a window. Yeah. And like, then gets what? stabbed. <laughs> yes. It was, that part was so strange. But other than that, I liked it. It just was, like... It, it was like an abundance of talent that they just had all these people who could do amazing things and yeah. you got to see them all. I have to say though that like I really, you know, when they were like, we're going to bring Peggy out and you have like one afternoon to learn the whole thing. I was like, mm, I don't think she can do it. Like everyone was like, I believe in you. And I was like, I don't believe in you. <laughs> <laughs> I know. This is a huge feat that like almost nobody could actually do. And this is your first show. <laughs> Yeah, and then, like, the idea that she, like, rehearsed for five hours straight. And yeah, then, right before the show. And then she was like, he was like, you have an hour to rest, so yeah. rest. And then she didn't even get to rest because it was, like, one thing after another. And then it was time to get into her costume. And I could believe he was forcing her to do those tap numbers over and over and over again right before she would have to do it on... St like, that's, like, the opposite of what they really want you to do, which is, like, the day of the performance, you just completely rest. Yeah. But I guess it worked out for her. Did you... So what was your take on the Dorothy character? I mean, in some ways, I think she's a character who, like, you know, she was in a vaudeville team, and then... She, like, had her own solo career and, like, got swept up in, like, that success and then, like, didn't really realize what she really wanted. And then, like, it only when she realized that, like, Pat was being 
pursued by some other woman was did she realize that like what she really wanted was to be back together with him you know like is that a pro women take on it i don't know but like at least she like at the end when she like comes around and is like you know comes to see ruby and we all think i thought that she was there to like ream her out you know and then she's like you know you look wonderful you'll do amazing here's some like last minute tips or whatever you know i thought that was very big of her I think she probably, like, she was very childish when she was drunk and, like, right before she broke her ankle. And I really thought that her broken ankle was, like, like, she was faking it just to, like, you know, get Pat away. Yeah, that fall did not look like something that would break your ankle. No. Especially on someone who, like, must have a lot of, like, leg muscles. Um, Although she wasn't really dancing. She was just, like, singing. I feel like she was, like, like, in the end, she's, like, a good person but not a hero, if that makes sense. Like, she was, you know, like, muddling her way through life and trying to figure out what she wanted and then trying to figure out how to get what she wanted. I think I tried to, like, infer things that possibly weren't really there based on (laughs) her leaving at the end because I thought, at least, like, reading between the lines, she was also kind of saying, like, you know, I did this star thing for a couple years and it's not really making me happy, so. Mm -hmm. I got that too, yeah. Because I think that is something that's really hard to do. Like, if you're someone who's become a big success, that just because you're good at something doesn't necessarily mean, like, it's the right thing for you. Yeah. Yeah, and I want to believe that, like, why she left was not just because she, like, she wanted to, like, be with Pat. She also realized that, like, she wanted to do something else work-wise. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I think it would be a hard transition from vaudeville to, like, big productions like that, too. Yeah. I kind of, at first, when I because I had seen the stage show prior, I was expecting her to be more of a villain, and I was like, I don't totally like what they're doing with her. But then <laughs> they, they really turned it around at the end, and I did like that she was supportive. How is she a villain in the stage production? Well, it's been a while since I've seen it, but... I think she was just, like, way more jealous of Mm. Peggy and, like, mean to her in more of, like, an all-about-Eve, like, you're gonna usurp me kind of (laughs) way. (laughs) I love that, like, there are a lot of callbacks in this episode to Mm -hmm. other movies we've watched. We've watched a lot of movies that are about theater. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. So what did you think in terms of social justice? Did you think that was there? I mean, I think you touched on it a little bit with, you know, the fact that they, like, address a a mental illness and, you know, address the fact that it's happening in the middle of the Depression, which, like, it was, the movie was being filmed during the middle of the Depression, so, like, kind of unavoidable. I don't think it, like dug too deeply into those issues but yeah I mean I don't think it was super social justice but they between the like talking about the depression they did um the director also did mention losing all his money in the stock market oh right and then the mental health stuff being treated gently I thought there were some like hints of it I've been living my own life making my own decisions for a long while now it's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again well, what about Bechtel, then? I think, you know, there were the, there was the moment when Dorothy, like, comes to to, um, to Peggy to, like, give her the 
pre-show pep talk and the fact that like anytime Annie you know, like goes to the director and is like I'm not coming here for I guess that's not really I can't pass the Bechdel test because it's her talking to to a guy but like there were like yes there were a lot of moments where there you know these women were like talking about guys around them but you know I, I also think there were a number of like either explicitly stated or like like implied like moments of like solidarity among women that I feel okay saying that it um passes the Bechdel test I don't know if technically it passes the Bechdel test what do you think oh I think it does for sure because there so many of the conversations are about the show that's and true, yeah. Their careers and things like that. And like when Peggy first shows up for the audition, the other girls help her. Like the yeah. only reason she even gets cast is because they put her in the their group. Yeah. And they know that their group is gonna get picked. Yeah. That's um, true. Yeah. And a lot of the conversation among the girls is about the show and not about men. And I also think, you know, that although there are a lot of relationships in the show or in the movie, that they, it's really, the the central plot is about an unknown getting an opportunity and becoming a star. Yeah. So it's not fundamentally about a romance. I think that's right, that, it, like, the thrust of the plot is whether the show is gonna, like, turn out okay, and, like, some of it depends on, like, interpersonal relationships. Yeah, so I, surprisingly, I thought, <laughs> and actually, a lot of the ones we've watched that are about theater have passed. Yeah, that's true. Because they have more female characters, and it's kind of First of like all, a... they have more female characters. <laughs> and it's like a workplace drama, sort yeah. of. Yeah. Well, what rating would you give it, Hill? I think I'm going to surprise you and say that I'm going to give this movie a four. A four? A whole four. Wow. Which is high for me for silly musicals. <laughs> well, so, but you liked it then. Yeah, I did. And I would watch it again. I mean, like, I'm not going to watch it again, like next week but I would watch it again like next year or whatever you know yeah. when I'm like oh I'm hankering for a backstage dance musical that has you know a lot of tap dancing in it yeah I wow I mean that's actually higher than I was gonna give it so now I'm like <laughs> but I agree with you that this is like no now you have to give it a four <laughs> I'm forcing up your score Just I <laughs> I would rewatch this and I enjoyed it like the you know a couple every once in a while Oh, even with Gilda, like, like I've struggled to get through that towards the end just because it was, like, Insane. brutal. Yeah. And this one, like, the whole time I was engaged and happy and, like, bopping my head to the songs and, like, <laughs> I was, I watched it alone and I was still, like, ta- you know, talking to myself being, like, get those legs up, girls. <laughs> like, <laughs> Take it from the tap. <laughs> So, oh, we didn't even talk about the side boob. Oh, God. (laughs) Well, wait, let me do my, I'm going to say, I'm going to say 3.75. And rewatchability, high. Uh Dancing, excellent. Production value, excellent. Um, Plot, thin. (laughs) (laughs) Plot, very poor. (laughs) Yes. Um, So, anyway, can we just talk about the one number where they're, like, barely covered? Mm -hmm. And even the way they're moving, if they're, like, trying really hard not to expose themselves. Yeah, the whole time you're like, this is really not a a good... This could not, this could turn out pretty badly. Yes. I don't know. Like, and if that really was like a stage number, there's no way they would get through that. Because if it was live, somebody would pop out. That's all I'm saying. Well, maybe that was part of the appeal. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. How they kept their audience. (laughs) 
I kept looking to be like, are they wearing like flesh colored leotards under there? <laughs> but it didn't seem to be the case. And yeah, one of the girls walked by and it like almost her whole boob was out <laughs> at one point. Try and catch us with the code. Just try and catch us. Yeah. They probably it was probably a fast enough walk by that like the code probably said side boob for only uh only five seconds and it was four seconds of side boob. <laughs> anyway, I so I had to I had to comment on that. I um, mean there were a lot of good costumes <laughs> in this uh in this movie, like including Dorothy's like dress thing that was actually pants. Yeah. Dorothy looked great the whole time, basically, yeah. I thought. I like the 30s style clothes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, take us back. We could talk about that at length. <laughs> <laughs> so, what is our next movie, Hill? Our next movie is Island in the Sun. Oh, so we're jumping way ahead in time. Way ahead in time, yes. In time okay. and space. <laughs> that sounds great. May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow The Screen Sirens on Twitter at The Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow is another day.